Hebrews chapter 12. So open up to Hebrews chapter 12, and I want to set you up to understand what's going on with this little phrase, fixing our eyes on Jesus, so that when we leave here and return back home, uh, that's something that I hope you'll be able to understand more. What does it mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? How do we do it? And what does that have to do with the Christian life being a race, being a race? So Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, let's read it together. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the very word of the living God. Just like we sang and prayed, may he write it on our hearts. You could probably guess I'm not a runner. But a couple years ago, I read a book about running. Yeah. And I went for some very vigorous walks during that period of time. I think I read it in a weekend, and the name of the book was a perfect, The Perfect Mile. The Perfect Mile. Somebody, anybody read that? It's a fascinating book. That guy read it. Uh, it's an interesting book. It's a historical book, not a nonfiction book. It's a true story about, uh, really, the central character is a guy named uh, Roger Bannister. Roger Bannister. He is now known as Sir Roger Bannister. He died a few years ago, but he was knighted by the Queen. He was a British uh, citizen, and he lived in the you know early 1900s, and he was a neurosurgeon eventually. But before he was a neurosurgeon, when he was still in medical school, he was an amateur athlete. Uh, in those days in England, there was not really professional athletes, uh, even you know famous athletes like Eric Little, Chariots of Fire. Dun, 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 you know that guy? So all, all those people had other careers, and it was, it was considered uh, kind of a, a side part of life, athletics. It wasn't a main thing, uh, especially in English society. And Roger Bannister was a med student. Uh, he, he went to a prestigious medical school, and the, it had a famous headmaster. The headmaster had this, this thing for recruiting athletes to be medical doctors. He thought it was a good combination. They had good instincts, good work ethic, good drive. In fact, when he would interview a potential candidate for medical school, the the head of this this prestigious medical school, they would sit across the desk from him. He would do like the normal interview thing. And then he would take a rugby ball out from hidden under his desk and chuck it at the person he was interviewing. If the person caught it, he would admit them to the medical school. It was like the the test. If they threw it back at him, he would give them a full scholarship. I think that's cool. (laughs) Just kidding. So Roger Bannister was an athlete. He was a jock. He was, uh, and he was specifically a runner. And in the 1800s, you know, leading up to the early 1900s, there was... Records being set, records being kept for how fast a human being could run a mile. And they were all in the four minutes and change area. And it had been about 20 years since anyone had gotten within 10 or 15 seconds of the four minute mile. Still, even today, quite an impressive achievement but no one had broken the four-minute mile. And because it had been several 
years since anyone had even come within 10 or 15 seconds, was quite a lot of time with that distance. Those who thought about this sort of thing began to speculate that it wasn't possible to run a mile faster than four minutes. In fact, they said it wasn't possible for a human being, their physiology, their joints, their muscles, their their bone structure, that they began to say it's just not going to happen. Well, along comes Roger Bannister, and in 1954, not only him, but another man by the name of John Landy, completely independent of each other, Bannister's in med school, and he's kind of running on the side and and getting faster and faster, and Landy is an Australian, and he's also running uh, and running and running, and they both are getting inching closer and closer to running a four-minute mile. And within one year of each other, in the same calendar year, both of these men broke this world record and astounded uh, everyone in the running world, in the athletic world. Uh, even medical doctors and experts were, were astonished that both of these men in different parts of the world in 1954, ran the perfect mile. Roger Bannister in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. And then just within a few months, John Landy, three minutes and 58 seconds flat. The world wanted to know if these two men raced, who would win? The two fastest humans on earth. And so they arranged a contest. It would have to be on neutral ground, so they put it in Vancouver, Canada. And the world was ready to watch these two men run. Uh, this is the earliest days of television, so they were going to broadcast it. It was, it was spread all over the world by radio as the time led up to this race. And it wasn't without its drama and difficulties. John Landy, the Australian, uh, the, the night before the big event was outside without his shoes on, and he stepped on a photographer's bulb from a camera and cut his foot Roger Bannister came down with some kind of head cold the day before the big match to be run. And so neither men was in optimal shape. Many thought there's no way that they could possibly even hit their previous record. And the world waited in anticipation to watch them run. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 3, adopts a famous metaphor that whether you're a runner or not, you need to have an understanding of because it's so often how the Bible describes our Christian journey, our Christian life. What we talked about yesterday, the, the following of Jesus, being a true disciple, One of the best ways to think about what it means to follow Jesus is to think about running. And again, you don't have to be fast. You don't have to be a track star. You don't have to even own shoes. You have to understand that there's something about running. There's something about a race that correlates with the Christian life, specifically with finishing the Christian life. Pastor John, this morning, Big, Big Mac on the screen, referred to the parable of the soils. And that parable reminds us that lots of people start the Christian life. Lots of people confess Jesus as their Lord. Lots of people begin to follow Jesus, but of those people, very few continue on finally. They proved that their salvation wasn't real. It was just a summer camp experience. And so when you start to think about the Christian life as a race to be completed, a race to be run, a race that involves obstacles and difficulties, trials, tribulations, that requires a great amount of effort and straining and purpose and planning and perseverance, that's when you start to understand 
what it means to run the Christian race, to run with endurance the race that's set before us. The author of this ancient letter, which was probably a sermon originally, was consumed with this idea of finishing the race. That's why he wrote the letter to the Hebrews. His whole concern was that the the people who heard him with this message, the epistle to the Hebrews, would not fall away. His entire concern was that in their Christian life, they would finish the race, that they wouldn't turn back to their former manner of life. His concern, as he wrote to them, chapter after chapter, the purpose of this whole letter is that they would run the race set before them with perseverance until the end, that they wouldn't give up, that they wouldn't fall away from Jesus, that they wouldn't be those who start strong and finish as a failure. And so the passage before us is after 11 chapters of arguing one central point, that the way that you keep on racing, the way that you keep on running, is by understanding who Jesus is. And in the epistle to the Hebrews, he's shown us that Jesus is, in one word, better, superior. Jesus is better Better than the angels, better than Moses, better than the law, better than the former way of worship of the temple, better than the old priesthood as Jesus' high priesthood is in the way he represents his people. Better, better, better. Jesus in every way is better. What we have in our experience, this side of the cross, different than what those in the Old Testament had, is they had a shadow of things to come in the sacrificial system. We have the real deal. They had the shadow. We have the substance. They had the promise. We have the reality. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to say to them. They need to keep on running. They need to keep on following, keep on believing, keep on trusting, keep on persevering, keep on struggling against sin because Jesus is better. Jesus is worth it. And it's here in chapter 12 that he reaches the peak of that argument of the superiority of Jesus Christ. And he wants his listeners to run. He's come off of giving them what seems like almost unlimited examples of people who finished the race. And I think that's where we start. Now, I like to give you an outline so you have a way to follow along. And sometimes I like to give a three-point outline when each point has three sub-points, which is secretly a way of giving you a nine-point sermon. But I'm not gonna do that to you on the last night of camp. I'm going to give you a one-point sermon. You ready? The title of the sermon is Fix Your Eyes on Jesus. And the first point, and the only point, because I think it's the only point of verses one through three, is run the race. Run the race. So how do we do that? Well, it tells us in verses one through three. Look at verse one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, What does that mean? A cloud of witnesses. Well, the answer is in that word, therefore. He's talking about what chapter 11 was about. And maybe you're familiar with chapter 11. You can flip back to it. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. His concern in chapter 11 was that these people would keep on believing, that they would continue to have faith, that their faith wouldn't fizzle, that they wouldn't quit. And that concept of by faith goes through the entire chapter. Look at verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken away, so they did not see death. Verse six, without faith, it's impossible to please him. 
Uh, Verse 7, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed. By faith Sarah, verse 11. Uh, And on and on he tells us the story of the hall of faith. Famous examples of those who live by faith and finish the race successfully, who fought against sin and who won in the end. Abraham being the chief example of verse 17. Moses being a pristine example of faith in verse 23. And then he says, on and on, I could give you examples. Unending, they were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, men of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Verse 40, God having provided something better for us, that they should not that they should not be made perfect apart from us it's all about this example of faith by faith it drives through the entire chapter it's this chronicling of examples of faithful endurance historical examples of faith that have been given to us, provided for us, examples from our own spiritual ancestry. It's as if he shows you your spiritual family tree and says, look at all these runners. Look at all these participants in the race. All these who lived by faith. And right away it starts to clarify something for us, something that's so important Something we've touched on all week long. What is faith? What is faith? And so he tries to show it by showing, here's what it looks like when people, actual real people, have lived by faith. And he's showing that faith is is not always what we think it is. Because a lot of people have a weird idea of faith. You've heard the phrase, blind faith. It means you just believe something whether it's true or not. There's elephants in the mountains here, you know. I'm going to just take that by blind faith. That's not blind. That's not faith. That's stupid. There's no elephants here unless somebody brought one. Or they use faith as like like a sentimental word like, you know, I love country music and fireworks on the 4th of July and faith. Yeah, kind of, because faith isn't just some like kind of cute, warm feeling. It's not just the, the lobby at Cracker Barrel. Faith isn't, the high schools at Grace are banned from Cracker Barrel. It's one of my favorite things about camp this year. So weird, they got banned. Tell you a story later. Faith isn't just some, you know, wonderful, warm, spiritual word that your grandma cross-stitches on a, on a pillow. I'm a person of faith, some generic, spiritual, meaningless word. Or faith isn't opposed to reason or evidence. Faith isn't being empty-headed or irrational, like Christians can't believe anything that's scientifically valid. We operate on the basis of faith, but that's not to say that we're irrational Because faith is reasonable. Faith is exact. Faith has content. Faith has an object. Faith is rooted and grounded in the promise of God. And faith looks forward knowing that God always fulfills his promise. That's what Hebrews 11.1 says about faith. It's the evidence of things unseen and a promise of things hoped for. Because faith doesn't come out of thin air. Faith isn't something you just kind of conjure up in your heart. Faith is a gift from God. Faith responds to God's revelation. So in other words, God says something and faith responds to what God says. That's what faith is. Faith is trust. Faith is belief. Faith is obedience. But faith doesn't come out of nowhere. Faith responds to the word of God. You see, faith isn't just saying, well, I hope things work out, like it's vague optimism or some kind of positive thinking like the the charlatans on Christian TV who say, you know, like, hey, are you feeling, you know, feeling sick? You got the Rona? Well, have faith and you'll feel better. No, bro, you need cough drops or something. 
Faith isn't like having a good attitude or vague optimism or positive thinking. It's not even only intellectual understanding of something. It's so much more because even demons believe. You see, faith responds to what God asks of us. And so when God says, behold my son, when God sends Jesus, that's revelation from God that demands a response. And faith responds. Faith is responsive and and it doesn't just respond once, it's performative. It continues to respond. And that's why in the listing of all those faithful people in Hebrews 11, it talks about not just what they believed, a promise, a hope, the word of God. It talks about what they did with it. So for Noah... Faith sounded like this. Because it says, by faith, Noah constructed an ark. His faith responded to God's warning. There's the revelation. I am going to judge the whole world and I will save you and your family. So build an ark, arky, arky, out of gopher, barky, barky, the Bible says. Right? Where's my Cracker Barrel amen on that one? Thank you. And then, and then Noah got his hammer out and went to work for a hundred years building a big old boat. They have a, you know, a kind of replica in Kentucky. Has anybody seen it? You, a lot of you have seen it. I've never seen it because I think it's super crazy. And no, no offense, though. I'm sure it was cool. But I did see a headline just yesterday that the, the ARC in Kentucky trademark is suing the insurance company because it was damaged in heavy rains. <laughs> True story. True story. Noah did it better. Okay, so the point is Noah did something with his faith. He responded to God's word and then he obeyed. That's what faith does. Faith has an impact on what you believe and on what you do. In Hebrews 11, faith is a response to God's word that dictates and demands action. And faith is still that way today. God calls you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to him for forgiveness of your sins, to find free and full salvation. And you respond to that offer, that gospel offer of God's free uh, mercy. And when you respond, it's not just I raised my hand, I prayed a prayer. It's that now you follow Jesus. Now you put your life in his hands. Now you obey him. It's not a past decision without reference to how you live now. It's a response to God's word that dictates and demands action. This same faith clings to God's promise and holds on to those promises with confidence. It responds to revelation. It doesn't come out of nowhere. Faith is always rooted and grounded and responsive to the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, a word about Christ. And that's true of Noah and Abraham and Moses. And it's true of you. If you have faith, it's because you've responded to the word of God. It dictates and demands action. Faith gives us that disposition to trust and hope and believe and act, whether it was Abel worshiping God as he was supposed to, or Noah hammering the gopher bark, or Abraham leaving his homeland, or Moses rejecting the earthly pleasures of Egypt to be associated with the people of God. Faith is always responsive and performative, responsive and performative. It seeks its reward from God on the basis of what God has said and then lives accordingly. And so when verse one of chapter 12 says, therefore, it's talking about that long list of faithful people who ran the race. And it says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, You see, faith isn't just a historical reality. It's an ongoing reality. It isn't just these big timers like Moses and Abraham and Noah and the apostles. Faith is still on display every time someone responds to the word of God. 
were surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. A great cloud of witnesses. All these people who have ran the race of faith. And this is where people get a little spooky with this verse because they think, are you telling me that Moses, beard, tablets, New Mexico sky, lightning, you know, Moses, robe, wild eyes, Moses. Are you telling me that Moses is watching me? Is he like Santa? Like he knows when I'm sleeping? He knows when I'm awake? He knows if I've been good or bad, so... Yeah, rearrange letters for Santa. You got Satan, so careful. <laughs> so here's the thing. I'm sorry, did you not know Satan's just, I mean, sat, sorry, same thing. <laughs> just don't tell your little brother when you get home. Wait a couple days. Are you telling me that Moses is watching me? Because it kind of creeps me out. Is Abraham watching me, the cloud of witnesses? And so some people picture our Christian life being a stadium. And then you got all these famous Christians that went before us, Old Testament saints up in the balcony going, yay. I don't think that's what it means. I think those saints are, having completed their race, completely consumed with the glory of God. I don't think they care what you had for lunch. I don't think they're watching you sleep. I mean, that's boring even if you're godly as Moses. They're witnesses in that they testify to what a race of faith looks like. That's how they're witnesses. It's not so much them watching us from the stands, it's that we have seen their example as previous runners. I mean, you've seen this all week in games. If you go first in one of the games in the mud pit or whatever, you don't know what you're doing, but if you watch other people succeed and fail, it helps you. That's the kind of witnesses that those other Christians who've gone before us, those other believers, the the cloud of faithful witnesses, it's not that Abraham is looking down on your life going, make better choices, young fella. He's not omniscient. And I don't think this cloud of witnesses is just listed to the, uh, limited to the people in Hebrews 11 because at the end of the chapter, he says, I could list a whole lot more. This is every faithful person who's ever gone before us, everyone who's ever responded to the word of God and put their faith in the promise of Jesus, in the examples of Old Testament saints, or in Jesus. This is the people from church history. This is your good and godly grandmother. It's anyone who's lived a life of faith and finished the race. All of it is saying it can be done. Because sometimes, especially if you're at the very beginning of your race of faith, and that's where most of you are, you wonder, man, I barely made it to 17. How am I going to get to 70? And here you have all these witnesses that are showing you that they made it. None of them were perfect. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was a liar. Moses was awesome. But Moses messed up too. And so did every example. But you know what? They finished the race. They kept believing. They kept persevering. And that's the point of the witnesses. Their lives are finished. Their race is finished. But their testimonies speak of faithful endurance. They are in eternal bliss with God. They've entered into his presence. And we've received full, they have received full and final commendation. And now all that's left for them, uh, for us, is to see and hear and remember their testimonies. We're surrounded by their walk of faith so that we're never alone because they witness it by their lives. We witness their witness. 
That's what that large cloud of witnesses is. It's a crowd that's ever growing of those who have testified to the faithfulness of Jesus and of his power to help you finish the race, to help you finish your earthly race, to help you obey Jesus and struggle against sin, to help you engage and endure throughout your life so that your earthly race ends at a finish line and you hear the voice of God say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the fullness of my rest. What more shall I say? The author of Hebrews says, time would fail me. You should have lots of godly examples in your life, young people, living and dead. You should look at those in church history who have lived the Christian life. Some of them, some of the most significant days of obedience were when they were your age. That's true of Bible characters like Mary or missionaries like David Brainerd. Young people that make a difference for God because they raced the same race that you race. They believed the same gospel that you believe and they are an example to you. This one point sermon is telling you just to do one thing because there's only one command in these three verses. In Greek, it's let us run. Everything else points to that. The cloud of witnesses surrounding us points to you running your race. And that's where we go next is what do you mean run the race? If, if a life of faith is like a race, in what way is it like a race? Well, the Bible loves to describe it this way. First Corinthians 9, Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He's talking about reward and uh, faithfulness for believers, and he uses the idea of a race. At the end of his life, he writes to Timothy, and he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. To the Philippians, he said, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's running language, pressing on, not looking back, enduring to the Galatians who were a mess. He looked at them and said, you were running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? We are called to run the race. Our Christian life is like a race. And it is a race that is to be ran. And I wonder if you just took that right now and looked at your Christian life and said, am I in a race? Anyone looking at my spiritual life, my Christian life, would they look and say, that dude is training for a marathon, spiritually speaking? Or are you like, would a better metaphor be, you are waiting for the bus of faith? Or you are watching a movie of faith? Or you are taking a nap of faith? Because running a race looks like something. It looks like effort. It looks like training. It looks like concern. It looks like striving. It looks like sweating. It looks like running. It's just one command for you. Let us run. I don't have a hundred things to tell you tonight. I'm telling you one thing. Run the race of faith. Because everything else in this little paragraph is dependent on that. Does your Christian life look like competing in a race? Are you running? Or are you floating? Is there a kind of diligence in your life when it comes to the things of God? Is there any spiritual discipline present in your life, in your race to get to heaven? Is there any kind of perspective about thinking how well you're running? Are there any examples you're looking to, to run better? Are you learning about this race? Are you thinking about the course you're going to run? Have you considered the obstacles and their difficulty and how you will overcome them? Are you aware you're in a race before you can learn anything about it? Are you even running? Are you believing? Are you trusting? Are you following Jesus? Or are you just laying there because you're in a race if you're a Christian and if you fail to finish that race there is eternally disastrous consequences that's the message of the book of Hebrews in this race you don't get a bronze medal if you don't finish 
Not everybody gets a little trophy. Participation. In this metaphor of the Christian life, everybody gets a gold. Everybody crosses the finish line. And if you don't cross the finish line, you get eternal destruction. Because if you don't finish this Christian race, it's not that you lose your salvation. The reality is is that you weren't even running the race. You were on a completely different path, a broad path. You were walking backwards somewhere. You were floating like a dead fish. You were pretending to be a runner. You were dressed up and you bought some hokas and some fast shorts, but you weren't actually on the race course. You were a fake Christian. This race is for those who finish. And to finish is to follow Jesus all the way to the end. The reality is, is those who are not running or who stop running or who do not engage in this race, who give up on Christ, were never truly committed to him. And so the fact that you're carrying so much stuff with you in your Christian race is evidence that you might not even be racing at all. What do I mean by that? Well, what's surrounding this command to run? First, the witnesses and the example they give us. But look at the second half of verse one. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Young people, can I warn you about two things in your Christian race? Encumbrances and sin. And I think they're different. I think there's a reason he puts two things together there. An encumbrance is anything that slows you down. In the ancient world, in the original, like earliest years of the Olympics in the Greco-Roman world, athletes would compete sans clothing. And this is because This wasn't a modesty issue. This was an athletic issue. It wasn't modest, I'll give you that. But they ran. And they didn't care about anything that would slow them down. They didn't have Nike. All they had was big tunics. And they're not gonna run with a big tunic. And so they got rid of the tunic and they ran. And so anything that would get in their way was considered an encumbrance. Throw off everything that hinders The Greek word is for weight, weight that slows you down as a runner. I understand weight. Because remember, I used to be a sumo wrestler before I got my good new figure. And the heavier you are, the harder it is to run. Can I get an amen again from the Texans? Thank you. So listen, well, those aren't even Texans. They're over there. I don't know what's happening. The heavier you are, the harder it is to run. Your knees hurt, your feet hurt. And the first place you start to lose weight when you go running is the heavier parts of you. And if you do go for a run and you have a lot of stuff in your pockets, you're not gonna have a good run. It's why you wanna wear an Apple Watch instead of carry your huge phone with you or an iPad. Because weight is gonna throw you off. And I think he says to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us is to provide a contrast. There are things in your life that are not necessarily sinful, but they're sure not helping you run the race of faith. It's a reference to getting rid of stuff, of something that's apparently throwing you off as a Christian in your race, something that's not necessarily sinful. Think about it for a minute. If you're just now realizing that your Christian life is a race and that you're engaged in the life of faith and it's demanding a pursuit of the finish line, then what does it mean to throw off everything that hinders you? I don't think I know what it is for all of you, but I think you know what it is if you think about it. Something that's not necessarily sinful but something that's prohibitive and slowing you down and weighing you down and pursuing the Christian race, the life of faith for all your worth, what is it that you're involved in that's not eternally significant? What choices do you regularly face and make that is not helping you follow Jesus faithfully? What's getting in your way? 
What's weighing you down? What comforts do you require that slow down your obedience to Jesus? What luxuries do you demand that weigh your race down? What, what hobbies consume your time that take you away from focusing on finishing the race? What's in your way? Is it a relationship? Is it friends who do not want you to run the race? who pull you away from focusing on Jesus, from running this race? Is it friends who are not running, but they want you to walk with them in a different way? Is it a Psalm 1 kind of situation? Fools that are turning you away from God, that are encouraging you the wrong path? What takes up all your time? What kind of entertainment choices do you make? You fall deep, deep down into a hole of Netflix never to emerge. You say you don't have time to read your Bible, but you've watched 27 seasons of Bluey. I mean, Bluey's not a sin. I think he's a saint, dear darling creature. I think Bluey's a girl. And you could say, look, everybody needs some entertainment, but does everybody need 17 hours of television or 24 hours of video games? Are they helping you take the Christian race seriously? What do you need to toss aside so that you can run? What training partners are not helping you? Because you need to cast off all these encumbrances, there's more than just those things because there's something that isn't just slowing you down or weighing you down. There is also things in your life that can wreck your race, ruin you completely. And so he says, lay aside every encumbrance, all those weights, and the sin that so easily entangles us. It's a reminder that every single runner in this race struggles against sin. And if you're going to finish this Christian race, now certainly that includes getting rid of the sin that easily entangles. And that's a word that's like a spider web, a kind of word where a fly lands on a spider web and gets entangled. Suddenly his wings are stuck to that glistening web that lured him in and soon he'll struggle and his struggle will only make his situation worse. And then that little spidery creature will come and wrap him up in a mummification process and he will die there. Sin is like that spider web. It entangles us. It can consume you. It can eat you alive. These are not the optional things that could help you run faster. These are things that God hates like pride and lust, laziness, lack of gratitude, sexual immorality, jealousy. These things will destroy you before the finish of your faith. If you cultivate that greed and lust and selfishness, instead of casting it off and repenting of those sins, sin can trip you up fatally in your race. If you cultivate sin in your life of faith instead of getting rid of sin, if you hide your sin and your hypocrisy instead of exposing your sin so that God can forgive it, then you can be tripped up so terribly that your race can be disqualified. Strength and discipline and repentance go hand in hand. Strength and discipline to assess the things in your life that are unnecessary but not necessarily sinful. And repentance that identifies the things that God hates and that can ruin your life and shipwreck your faith. Taking both seriously is part of running this race. The race is called an Agnon in Greek. It's where I get our, where it's where I, it's where I get the word agony from. I think it's where everyone gets the word agony from. It's a fight. It's agonizing. It's a labor. It's a trial. It's a hardship. It's a wrestling match. It's resistance coming at you and effort on your part to push through. And running requires effort. There is no race apart from effort, apart from trying, apart from forcefulness, a determination, discipline. You can't do that if you're cultivating and hiding your sin and wasting your life on junk 
And so he says, get rid of the weight and junk and repent of the sin. And that little phrase in there says, lay aside every encumbrance, the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. With endurance, the race that is set before us. We're just looking at the words here. Endurance and the race set before us. Let's do the race set before us. That's interesting, isn't it? I did run competitively once. I signed up for a 5K in my 20s just a couple years ago. I'm offended. And I, I, I trained for this race with some people that I worked with at Starbucks Coffee Company. I was a barista. And we ran 5K, 3.2 miles a bunch of times. And I remember we scoped out the place we were supposed to run and we ran around that area to check the hills and the streets and stuff like that because there was a, a course laid out for us. And every race is on a different course. And I think it's so interesting that he says, the race that's set before us, it's a reminder that your race isn't Moses' race. Your race isn't your brother's race or your sister's race. We're all in a Christian race, but we have a different course, each one of us. Different difficulties, different temptations, different trials, different lengths of races. Some of you will, will run the Christian life for 80 years. Some of you will meet Jesus way before that. And that's not up to you. That's up to the one that set the course. Some of you have extraordinary physical difficulties. You, you have a disease or you're disabled in some way. Some of you have extraordinary strength. Some of you are, are highly intelligent. Some of you are middly intelligent. But that's just the way God's wired you and made you and your race is for you. God set it out for you. Some of you are tempted by certain sinful proclivities and some of you are tempted by other sinful proclivities. This is all part of your race. And a sovereign God in his providence, in the outworking of his sovereign plan for your life, has set you a race that's different than Abraham's race and different than the race that Jesus ran and different than the apostles and different from your mom and dad. You have your own race to run. It's a course that God has pre-appointed for you. How are you to run it? Well, it says with endurance. The race that's set out for you by the providence of God because you weren't born in an Egyptian palace and you aren't called to lead Israel out of Egypt. Uh, the race that you're called to run does have something in common with every other race, whether it's short or whether it's long. However God has appointed your race, it is to be run with endurance. That means the race is not a sprint. It's a marathon. I've talked to people and they've said, you know, I tried to read my Bible. And I, I say, well, how long did you try to read your Bible for? And they're like, a couple days last week. I just couldn't get into it. Couple days? You know, I tried to build a castle once. Yeah, how long did you work on it? You know, it was five minutes. I just think that's not going to do it. Because the Christian life is longer than two days. It's longer than two weeks. For most of us, it's a marathon. I know a guy, a pastor in Los Angeles. My kids go to school with his kids. And I was following him on Instagram, not following him in his actual race. And he signed up for some, to fundraise for some race called the World Marathon Challenge. Have you heard of that? The World Marathon Challenge. It's seven marathons. A marathon is 26.2 miles, I'm told, Wikipedia. Seven marathons on seven continents in seven consecutive days. It costs a ton of money. It's like 50 grand, 75 grand, something like that. They put you in like a jet plane and they fly you. Your first race, I think, is in Antarctica, seriously. Like wear a parka and run along. 
And then they fly you to Chile and you race in Chile and then you race in South America and, or that is South America. Then you race in Europe and Africa. And I can't think of all seven continents. Nope. Splash. And I watched him do this thing on, on the gram. And eventually, I think on continent number seven, his knee blew up. He had all kinds of issues. He had to walk the final marathon. It took him something like eight hours. I mean, that's what the Christian race is like. It's long. It requires endurance. I mean, look around when you get to, back home to church. Some of the people in your church are in their 80s. How many marathons have they run? How many lifetimes of following Christ are, are captured in this one person's existence. I mean, as a Christian, you've got to make it through your, your, your childhood years with that Sunday school faith and then face the temptations that you're facing now in your adolescent years, trying to get through high school. This is a marathon in and of itself. And then you'll get into your college years and, and that's a marathon. You've got to find a wife and you've got to pick a major and Probably pick a major and then find a wife. And, and that's a marathon. And then you got to raise a bunch of kids. And, and that's a marathon. And then they become teenagers. And that's a bigger marathon. And then you got to stay faithful in the race. And it's a marathon. And then you, you get into your late 20s. And it's a marathon. And you get middle-aged. And it's a marathon. And you lose some hair and, and coordination. And it's a marathon. And, and you... You stay married and it's a marathon and you tell people about Jesus and it's a marathon. Life is a marathon and it just keeps going to another marathon and another marathon. And then your spouse dies and you, you bury her and it's a marathon and you face the difficulties of old age and it's a marathon and, and then eventually you'll be on your own deathbed and it's a marathon to cross that final Jordan River as you look to Jesus. It's a marathon. It's way more than seven continents in seven days. The Christian life is a race that's set out for you, and it is to be run with endurance. It's not a little tiny sprint, and then you're done. Have some Gatorade. You just keep on going, throwing off everything that hinders, casting off every sin that trips you up and ensnares you. And ultimately you must focus and you must finish, but you do not do it by gritting your teeth. You do not do it solely by looking at the excellent examples of Christians who have gone before you. There is one way that you will finish this exhausting, this grueling marathon. There's only one way where your faith will not fade. There's only one way that you'll go through all the injuries and all the trials and all the temptations. This race that's your race appointed just for you, set before you by the providence of God with these examples that you can fill your mind with, with every encumbrance and weight that you're cutting out of your life and every sin that you're giving to Jesus to say because of what you did on the cross I can be forgiven and you endure and you run and you run, but you cannot run a single step unless you know where the finish line is and unless you see the supreme example of runners. And it is not Moses, and it is not Abraham, and it is not Sarah, and it is not Abel, and it is not Noah, and it is not Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the martyrs that went after them. It is not the apostles. It is not the most faithful pastor you've ever known. You need to look in one place more than anything else. All those other examples can inspire you and help you as imperfect runners that go along with you. But you must look at the one who crossed the finish line in perfect stride. The one who had never stopped running. The one who pressed and pressed and finished and endured to the end. That's why verse 2 says fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the one that we're running after. And he's the one who ran the race before us. The ultimate example is not 
anyone but this man. Jesus, in his human name used in this passage, is the one that we look to. And his human name, Jesus, reminds us that he is our example, the initiator and the completer, the beginner, the author, and the perfecter. F.F. Bruce said Jesus had to come down, not by some gesture of supernatural power. He didn't live his life as some superman, but he ran the race, the same race we run, the one that was appointed for him, and he did it with faith, and he did it in spite of difficulty, suffering, and temptation. Hebrews 4 Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, we boldly come to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is the ultimate example of running the race. He is both the author of the race and the finisher of the race. He started your race when he gave you faith and he will help you finish your race race as you come into heaven and are embraced by your savior. Jesus is the finish line and the perfect example. And that's why he says, fix, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Because Jesus' race looked like the cross. That was the ultimate obstacle that Jesus faced. The shame, the torture, the ignominy, the suffering, the violence, the horror, the scorn, the shame. Despising the shame. In other words, in spite of the shame, he endured the cross. And how did he do it? For the joy set before him, verse two. The cross was not the joy set before him. We learned that the other night. The joy was beyond the cross. The cross was the means to the crown. And that's why it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're to fix our eyes on Jesus, and Jesus is alive. In fact, Jesus is in a place right now at the right hand of God. And do you know what he's doing? He's praying for you. That's why he's a sympathetic high priest. He ran the race before us. He knows how hard it is. And because he ran it perfectly, he's most sympathetic to our weaknesses. His perfection doesn't mean he understands us less. In his humanity, he experienced the full range of temptation's power. The difference is he never gave into it. You can't think of Jesus just temptation just bouncing off of him like bullets off of Superman. I mean, look at him in the garden pleading with God. Drops of blood coming off of his face. Look at him in the wilderness with the devil himself tempting him for 40 days. His deity had no, no sinful appeal, but in his humanity, he felt the full force of temptation's power. And because he resisted it, and then resisted it, and then resisted it, he understands temptation better than we do because at some point in our temptations, we've given in to them, haven't we? And so you were stretched, you were tempted, you were tempted, and then you snapped and you gave in. Now consider how Jesus handled the same temptation. He was stretched, he was stretched, he was stretched, he was stretched, he was stretched. He never gave in to it. Who understands temptation more? The one who experienced this far or the one who experienced this far? 
He understands what you're going through, young people. Jesus was a teenager too. Jesus ran the race before him and his race concluded with a cross. And beyond the cross was the glory of God at God's right hand where he currently prays for you and intercedes for you and is our ultimate example of one who lived by faith. Consider him, verse 3, who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Growing weary and losing heart is running phraseology for someone collapsing under exhaustion. Friend, if you're going to run the Christian race, you'll cast off the things that hinder you because you know it's hard, it's difficult, it's a long race that must be run to the end decisively and finished for you to win that prize and receive that joy that's on the horizon, the glory of being with God in heaven forever. You'll have all those examples in your mind of faithful endurance that surround us from the Old Testament and from today. Those who have finished their races and ultimately Jesus is the one you're looking to as you cast off every hindrance and consider and look and fix your eyes on Jesus who can forgive you of every sin that could ensnare you and in his agonizing race there was opposition and there was endurance and you must keep running, keep running, keep running. Verse four goes on to say, have you resisted uh, to the point of shedding your own blood? The answer is no. You're not a martyr yet, but Jesus did. He resisted all the way to death. And so we despise the shame like Jesus did. We don't care what they say about us. We push off the naysayers and we keep on running just like Jesus did. We don't take this hostility from sinners just like Jesus did. We won't be discouraged. We'll keep on running with our eyes looking to our Lord and Savior, the architect of the race and the finisher of the race and the glory that we will enter in will be his and ours will be uh, shared in it. We will not grow weary or faint-hearted because Jesus didn't grow weary or faint-hearted. On that final day in that marathon, Jesus hung on the cross and he accomplished everything necessary for us to finish our race, not merely by endurance and human effort, but with endurance looking to Jesus who will carry us across the finish line when we place our faith in him. We walk and he bears us up knowing that his example is before us. In 1954, on an August day, one of the earliest televised things was that famous race. The end of the year, both men having set the world record. And everybody knew John Landy was faster. He beat him by a whole second in the time trial. But now they were going to race head to head. One of them with a cut foot and the other with a bad cold. Landy, the faster one, the favored one. And Bannister, this English kind of noble guy who's got a really bad cold. They've been interviewed by reporters for days leading up to this thing. It's on the radio. There's pictures, so many pictures taken of these two men in preparation. And everybody knew that Landy was faster, that he ran harder, and that he was a smooth runner, and, 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 and Landy knew it. He was the more confident one. He was more arrogant and aggressive, and Bannister was slow and steady as far as fast guys go, and kept his pace and kept his kick for the final moment of the race. And because Landy was so sure of his victory, with just yards left to go, he had led for the entire course of the mile. He was ahead and he knew it, but with just yards left and seconds to go before the finish line, he committed the ultimate mistake. And he looked inside. He was on the inside track and he looked inside thinking he'd see him as he was about 15 yards behind him as he'd been the whole race. And that one slight change was the moment when Roger Bannister came along the right side put that final kick 
and cross the finish line. Both of them finishing under four minutes, but Roger Bannister winning the race. It was captured in a famous photograph and eventually it was turned into a bronze statue that you can still see in Victoria, British Columbia today. One runner with his neck turned away from the finish line. Another right next to him, reaching and pumping about to cross the line and win the race. The worst thing you could do is take your eyes off Jesus. Take your eyes off the finisher and the finish line. To look back to what is behind you can be fatal. So friend, I urge you to run. Run like Jesus ran and run for him and run to him. Father, thank you for this encouragement from your word. May we do as your word says to respond to you in faith, to throw off all that hinder, to turn away from sin that ensnares and with endurance run the race set out before us. Thank you for the supreme example of Jesus, the one we run for, the one we want to run like, and the one we run to. In his name, amen.